So today uh, we are continuing in our sermon series in the, the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're, what we're doing uh, this summer is that we're working through the Gospel of Mark. And we're calling this entire sermon series, The Cross and the Crown. And today we're coming to Mark 2, uh, verses 13 through 17. And if you have been with us over the past few weeks, you know that Mark is telling this gospel account with really a, a, an incredibly fast pace. He moves from episode to episode at a very quick pace. And today we're coming to the episode where Jesus calls Levi to follow him. Levi is a tax collector, and that is a scandalous thing. He is calling this man who is a tax collector to come and follow him. And so as Jesus, as we have seen over the past several weeks, Jesus has come and he's coming to, uh, sh to, sh to share the kingdom, the, news, the good news of the kingdom of God, that it has come. But as he is sharing this good news, he is specifically coming to minister to sinners. And as we come to today, not only are we seeing really the gospel at work, we're actually seeing the gospel methodology that Jesus is using to reach sinners. And that methodology is over a meal. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And so we're going to be, let's look at this uh, from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, you can follow along in your worship guides, or you can follow along on the walls beside me. But this is Mark ch chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we ask that you would be with us now as we look at your word. May you meet us um, amid our doubts and our and our emotions and our hurriedness and distracted hearts, Father, may you meet with us and show us the beauty of your of your grace, and may we see the good news and that what the word your word is for our life today. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Journalist uh, Cody Delastre writes a personal story in an article that he wrote. This article is is from the Atlantic, and this article is entitled "The Importance of Eating Together." And this personal story goes like this, and this is the way that he opens that article. And he writes that after my mother passed away and my brother moved to New Zealand, the first thing that felt really different about our home life was the dinner table. My father and I began eating separately. We went out to dinners with friends. We ate sandwiches in front of our computers. We ate pizza that was delivered to us while watching movies. Some days we rarely saw each other, if at all. Then, a few weeks before I was set to leave for university, my father walked downstairs and said to me, You know, I think we should start eating together, even, even if it is just you and I. I know your mother would have wanted it that way. It was not ideal, of course. The meals that we made were not particularly good. 
we miss the presence of, our, of mom and my brother. But there was something therapeutic. Having a meal together was an excuse to talk, to reflect on the day and on recent events. Our chats about the banal of baseball and television often led it to serious conversations about politics and death, of memories and loss. Eating together was a small act and it required very little of us. It only required 45 minutes away from our usual ordinary distractions. And yet, it was invariably one of the happiest parts of my day. See, Cody and his father stumbled into a simple truth, and this is a truth that every single one of us know, but it is a truth that we struggle to have shape our entire lives. The truth is this, is that food is never just food when we share it together. Food is never just food when we share it together. This is incredibly true for Jesus and his followers, and as we look at this text, we see a, a... we see one way that this truth it comes across, that food is never just food when, we sh- we, when shared with one another. When Christians share a meal together, we see something about our lives. When we look at Jesus here in this text, we see something about having a meal together. See, the central thing that I want us to look at today is that meals with Jesus are about friendship with sinners. Meals with Jesus are about friendship with sinners. And we start out by looking at this text in, in Mark 2. And, and Mark is telling this story in a way that should actually be familiar to us. He is passing by the sea and he comes to Levi. He says, follow me. And even as he sets this episode up, this episode is very similar to the episode when he, Jesus comes across Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Jesus is walking by the sea. He sees these fishermen, and he says, come and follow me. See, so Mark is telling telling this story about Levi, and he's connecting these dots for us. And as Jesus gathers these disciples to follow him, like we have seen over the past few weeks, we have seen Jesus heal a paralytic. He has forgiven his sins. Jesus has healed a leper. And today we're coming and we see Jesus uh, calling Levi. But in the very first thing that Levi does as an act of his discipleship, yes, he is following Jesus. Yes, he is following him and and witnessing these, these, these healings. But the first thing that he does, the first thing that he contributes is by is inviting Jesus into his house to meet with his friends, his family, and his business associates. That's the very first act of discipleship. That is, that's the very first act of discipleship that we see. That after Jesus calls Levi to follow him, the first act of discipleship takes place around Levi's dinner table. And, and we, see, we see something about Jesus. And this, this, what we see about Jesus is not voiced to us from Levi. It's not voiced to us from Jesus. It's actually voiced by the Pharisees who are really criticizing Jesus. They're saying, why is he associating himself? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And that's what I want us to dwell on today, is that Jesus gladly eats with Levi. He gladly drinks with his friends and his family. He gladly associates and befriends sinners and tax collectors. He gladly does so because that is what is at the heart of God. This meal 
is a demonstration of his kingdom. This meal is a demonstration of his inclusive grace. And this grace uh, that Jesus shows to others, this grace that includes sinners and, and enemies of the state, which we'll look at in a moment, this meal that, is sh- that welcomes sinners offends the religious leaders of, his, of this day. So let's uh, dive into this text. Text. Let's see how this is the case. And as the first thing I really want us to look at is really the clash that occurs between Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. The clash. And Martin, we see this clash come, off, come across right away as Jesus introduces us, not Jesus, but Mark introduces us to the Pharisees. This is really the first time the Pharisees have been mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. And, and we'll see them more and more over the next few weeks. In fact, we'll look at the Pharisees even further next week. And uh, if you are familiar with the Gospels, if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you know something about the Pharisees. And this is what you know about the Pharisees is that they are the primary antagonist in the Gospels. They are Jesus' enemies. In fact, Right away next week, we'll see, and this is incredible, at the end, really, of Mark 2, the Pharisees say, like, hey, let's go conspire and kill this guy. That's interesting. Like, we're just two chapters into this book. Um, and so, like, but how is that the case? Why is that the case? And so if you're unfamiliar with the Pharisees, let me explain who the Pharisees are and some of their motivations um, that are going on in, in their entire paradigm and ideology. And so who are the Pharisees? And so again, the, the Pharisees are the religious uh, leaders of Jesus' day. They are, they are actually a, a minority in the, the entire Jewish life, but they are pr- really the most popular religious movement in Jesus' day. Uh, t- they are committed to serving God. They are faithful in their worship attendance. They're faithful in uh, their participation of prayers. They are devoted uh, to God's word, but to teaching it, to keeping God's commandments. They are, they are devoted. I really want to emphasize that. They are devoted to keeping God's commandments. They're devoted to their own obedience. And that is a great description, is it not? Wouldn't any, if you are a Christian, wouldn't you want to be described this way? That you love God, that you love his word, that you, you participate in worship, that you engage in prayer. Wouldn't you want to be known that way? So how in the world is this a criticism? Because it is a criticism. Let me st- take a step back. I just said that they are devoted to obeying God's commands. That's, what do I mean by that? Because the Pharisees mean some, meant something but in that differently than Jesus would. What the, because the Pharisees did something in their careful obedience to God's commandments. They, what they did is they added to God's law. To use a simple cliche, they believed that bad company corrupts good morals. So what they did is they did everything in their power, everything in their energy to avoid both sin and sinners. They also believed that Rome was their moral enemy. They believed that God could not come and rescue, in fact, God would not come and rescue Israel until God's people truly walked in holiness. And so what this means is that their focus is on obeying not just God's law, 
but there are man-made laws and regulations and rules that they added to God's word as well. And so this is really the background for what's going on in this text. This is, so on one side we see the religious establishment that is there with their man-made rules and regulations, and at the same time there's Levi, this tax collector. And see, the, the, this clash occurs because of whom Jesus associated himself with. The, on one hand, we have the religious establishment with the Pharisees, but then on the other hand, we have tax collectors and sinners. So let me just think about the tax collectors and sinners for a moment. And as we come to understand some, the tax collectors, it's what we need to first and foremost understand is that they essentially are employees of Rome. They are collaborators with those who are ruling over Israel. They are collaborating with those who are subjugating, in fact. They are subjugating uh, Israel. Because Israel is not its own little nation. In fact, Israel is a servant nation to the, the capital of Rome. And so there are taxes that come with that. And so, in fact, if you were a tax collector, yes, you were an employee of Rome, but you're also an employee of whoever... Rome puts in charge of Israel as their king. So in this case, it would be King Herod, who is truly the most despised individual of, of Israel in his day. And so as you look at any tax collector, whether it be, be Levi or Zacchaeus, another tax collector in the Gospel of Luke, but as you look at any tax collector, you're going to be looking at him and despising him, not just because he's there like the IRS, he's there representing your enemy within the Pharisaic mind. And so um, just to, let me just continue with this. And so they are collaborators, but something else is going on. If you look at the Old Testament law, like there were laws that even had to deal with like handling and counting pagan or Gentile money. If you would do that, you would be unclean. And, and that is, in fact, how Levi made his his entire job, his vocation, his way of life. So he is a, an unclean outcast by the Old Testament Levitical law. That's, that's another thing that's going on here. But there's something else going on here. Is that, and it has to understand how, and, you, this, and this has to do with how tax collectors earned their income. See, tax collectors did not get a paycheck from Rome whatsoever. How tax collectors were paid was through, like, Basically, they were authorized to do whatever they needed to. So what they would do is that they would come and as they would gather taxes, they would say, hey, you owe Rome 10%, and just for my services and my fees, you owe me another 2% of your income. And, and, but that wasn't mandated. That 2% could be 3%. That 3% could be 6%. So all of a sudden, how tax collectors earned their money, it was a vehicle, that, not really a vehicle, but it was a situation that was just ready to be abused. And we see how that is actually dealt with in the story of Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke, but that's for another day. So I just want to bring home the simple point. Here's Levi. He is a tax collector. He is a collaborator with Rome. In other words, he is a traitor. Not only is he a traitor, he is a social outcast. He is unclean. He is un impure. And not only that, he is a person who potentially, we don't have the details to this but he, in this text, but he is a man who could very well be a corrupt government employee. 
And so this is Levi for us. And Jesus comes and he, he says to Levi, hey, come and follow me. And this is the, the remarkable thing. Uh, this is something else that I pointed out a few weeks ago. Is that contrary to the rest of Jewish society, where in Jewish society, students would go and pick their rabbis. Students would say, hey, I want to come and be your disciple. What's going on here is that Jesus is coming and saying, come and follow me. Come, I want you to be my disciple. So what we should see here is that Jesus is handpicking a Roman collaborator, a, tra- a traitor, a, a potentially a corrupt government employee, a social outcast to be his disciple. Jesus is choosing this man to be his friend. And so if we, taking a step back, if we understand the pharisaical mind, if we understand what Jesus is doing, there is a clash that is occurring. And the clash that we are seeing demonstrated for us is that really the Pharisees, with their mentality that good company corrupts good morals, with that mentality, they basically said, we cannot ever associate with tax collectors. We cannot ever associate with sinners. But here's Jesus, and he does. He chooses to associate with tax collectors. He chooses to associate with sinners. And so what the Pharisees are truly doing with their entire religiosity and their way, their man-made rules and regulations, what they're doing is that they are condemning people They're condemning people at a distance. And whenever that occurs, whenever you condemn people at a distance, whenever you do that, that is a sign of legalism. That is a sign of religiosity. That is a sign that you take pride in your own man-made rules and way of life. It's not just pride. It's where you see your rules and your entire identity as the entire... um, your, what I'm trying to say is that that's when you take your man-made rules and you say, this is what defines me. And you use that as a pedestal to condemn others. And that is done at a distance. That's what the Pharisees are doing. But Jesus is doing the complete opposite. He actually comes near. He gets involved in our lives. He comes to Levi and says, hey, come and follow me. And Levi does. And the first act of discipleship that Levi does is having a dinner, and he invites Jesus to this dinner. He doesn't just invite Jesus to this dinner. He invites all his business associates, his friends, and his family to this dinner as well. And this is significant. This is incredibly significant because God's love and grace is more powerful than sin. So the, the Pharisee's essential mentality that God, that essential mentality that that bad company corrupts good morals, that is, defeat, that is really undone and deconstructed by God's love. And that is why Jesus befriends and loves us sinners, because his love, his holiness, is more powerful than our sin. His love, his holiness, is contagious. The reality for Jesus, the reality for Jesus and his followers for the church should be this. It is this for Jesus, and it should be our case in our life as well. And it's this, it's it's that Christ-like company corrupts bad morals. Jesus flips the pharisaical mind. And so here, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, a Roman collaborator, is welcomed by God. 
a traitor, a social outcast, someone who is hated, is known and loved and forgiven by God. Jesus enters into the house of a traitor and a social outcast. So it's no wonder that there would be a clash between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples. It's no wonder. But it's also no wonder that Levi would throw a dinner party in the first place. He is being, he is being embraced by God's anointed king and invited over and invited to follow him. It's no wonder. Like we can't miss the emotional significance of what has just occurred in Levi's life. So he decides to throw a party to introduce Jesus to all his associates and acquaintances. And so in this moment, Jesus is a guest of Levi. Jesus is a guest of Levi. And I've said this before, that there, like, if you look throughout all the Gospels, there's only one time Jesus is hosting a meal himself. Every other time, Jesus is invited into someone else's home. In fact, he invites himself into other people's home. Like he says to Zacchaeus, he's like, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house today. Jesus is always a guest in someone else's home, except when he has one last meal with his disciples, and that's the Last Supper. But, when we, but even though Jesus is Levi's guest, there is a particular purpose to this meal. Jesus has a particular purpose for this meal. And this goes back to my earlier point that meals are never just meals. Meals are never just meals. And so this, like, so if earlier there's the clash between the religious, religi- religious people and Jesus, at this point it's like, I want to drive home the why. And it has to do with this meal, because this meal is actually all about God's grace. This meal is all about God's grace. My friend Ray Kanata is known uh, quite literally as the man who ate New Orleans. I mean that literally and seriously. There's a documentary by that title that focuses on Ray. And Ray uh, is a pastor. He's a church planner. He was in New Jersey, but then he took a call to go down to New Orleans and when he took that call to go be the pastor of Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in New Orleans, it was two months before Hurricane Katrina happened. And so then Hurricane Katrina happened, and the church was decimated, and he still moved down to New Orleans anyways. The first service, they only had 17 people. And so, but as he, he's, he's there, he's trying to both rebuild this church, but the first thing he wanted to do is rebu- help rebuild the city. And so they hosted mission trips from all over the country. And, and so one of the things that he did is that as he went to fight and challenge the, the understanding that New Orleans is just this party town that's known for Mardi Gras and, and, uh, and more. So he wanted to celebrate that, this fact that New Orleans has amazingly good food. And so he made this, this personal goal of his to eat at every non-chain restaurant within New Orleans. And the total number was 732 restaurants at that time. And uh, so somehow people got heard of this. And so literally a documentary crew followed him around. And it's fascinating. But so Ray Kanaz, is the man who ate New Orleans. And, but he also had one beautiful thing. There's a lot of beautiful things about Ray. But Ray has this incredible understanding about food. And this is what he, he, he said to me is that when you look at the scriptures, when you look in the Bible, you'll find that food is used for three different things within scripture. On, on, first thing is fellowship, the second is flavor, and the third thing is fuel. 
fellowship, flavor, and fuel. And he, he went, goes on to say this. He's like, you know, I need to eat 10% less than I do. So I skip any meal that I, where I don't have at least two of those. I will eat alone sometimes when I'm really hungry. So I eat food is going to be flavor. Excuse me, fu- food is going to be fuel for me. And I know that it'll taste good. Flavor. But I will never eat alone where I don't have fellowship. When it's just meal time, where it's just convenient, or, and, and I'm not hungry, or, or I would never eat alone when the food is horrible, like what you would find at Burger King. This is Ray. And so this, this is meant to be provocative in a sense, to help us understand something about food, that f- food is more than just fuel. Food is about fellowship. Food is about friendship. Food is about flavor as well. And when we look throughout the meals of Jesus, throughout all the Gospels, you clearly see that food is more than fuel for Jesus. It's even more than fellowship and flavor. Some of Jesus' most extraordinary miracles occur with food in hand, where he has a handful of bread and a couple of fish, and he feeds 5,000 people, or he feeds 3,000 people. Food is more than fuel. Meals are more than nourishing Jesus' body. See, food, specifically meals shared together, means something bigger. Whenever Jesus eats, in fact, it's a shared meal with his disciples. It is a meal that is a picture of the new world that he is talking about, that he is promising, that he will bring Meals represent a new kingdom, a new way of life, a new outlook of life. They're not just symbols or pictures of God's kingdom. Meals for Jesus are about relationships. Meals are about friendships. Meals are about community and family. And if you want to know who your friends are in your life, seriously, look around the the table whom you're eating a meal with. If you want to know who your family is, those who are most intimately connected to you, just look across the table when you're eating a meal together or eating a meal. And see, for Jesus and his, his way of life, for Jesus and his entire community of his disciples, at the very center is a dinner table. It's, it's the Lord's Supper. This is one reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. And as he rescues people, he brings them into community. He brings them into his family. He says, he doesn't just rescue us from our sin. He doesn't just rescue us from the penalty of sin. He's not just saving us from the power of sin. He's, He's brought us into a community, into his family. He has restored us with God, and he has given us spiritual brothers and sisters, and the table of the Lord is a clear demonstration of that. So later on, as we come forward to the Lord's Supper, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are actually participating in a a meal where God is the host, and we are his most intimate friends and family because he has rescued us, and he has brought us to the dinner table. And so that's at the center, that the dinner table is really at the center of the church's entire way of life. This, a dinner table is a picture of Jesus' mission. He's not just after us to rescue us from our sin. He's after us so that he would bring us into his family, that he would be our friend. And so the point is, is that it's truly impossible on a, on a more broader level, it's truly impossible to imagine or conceive of a community without 
meals together. And what I'm, trying, what I'm saying there is that if you ever want to see true community, there's always going to be meals together. And that is absolutely true for Jesus' disciples. And it's the, in fact, it's the first act of discipleship that we see occurring within Jesus' disciples' lives. See, meals with Jesus are a window into his, are into, are a window into his kingdom, his way of life. The meals of Jesus are about grace. And this is meant to define us. It's meant to define our, us as a family. It's meant to define our mission and our, and our way of life together. And so what this means is that meals have an incredible power to them. Meals have an incredible power to them. And that this could be a meal that we have like a potluck meal here, or when we have people over into our homes, or, or meals have a power to them. And here's an example of what I mean. In 1999, a, a Christian organization for men uh, named Promise Keepers uh, went to Syracuse University, and they were having a rally there. And as they were having a rally there, like in, the, in all the hype and the promotional um, marketing going on beforehand, th- this hype caught the attention of a tenured English professor. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria at that time was 36 years old. She was in a lesbian relationship. She was having a formative role in the subject that is now called queer theory. And, and she writes, at that time, she wrote a scathing editorial that criticized Christianity and it was published in the newspaper, and it caught a lot of criticism from Christians, um, it, that some of which was hate mail. It's truly awful. But one such letter that, not one such letter, one letter was different, that it stood out from all the rest, and this letter was written by a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor named Ken, Flo- Ken Smith. This letter was different because this letter basically treated her with compassion and honored her. It respected her. said, hey, if you want to talk about this more, uh, give me a call. And let, you can come over to our house um, to, for dinner, and you can have dinner with my wife and I. And so Rosaria has been very honest about this. She's like, uh, she, she took him up on this offer sp- simply because she was working on a book on Christianity and the religious right. And she needed to have some conversation partners so that she can dig deeper into this. And she writes that as she accepted this offer, something else happened in her life. And these are her words. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We exchanged books. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his own sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet merciful. And at my first meal at their home, Ken and Floyd omitted two important steps in the Christian rule book as I have had always understood it. They did not share the gospel with me, and they did not invite me to their church. Because of these glaring omissions to the Christian rule book, as I had come to know it, I felt that God, I felt that when Ken extended his hand to me in friendship, it was safe to close my hand in his. And Rosaria, uh, she's, she goes on to tell her story, but this occurred for two entire years. And she then came to profess faith in Jesus Christ. And she has had an incredible, she, 
in her, the title of her first book is Secret Thoughts, an Unlikely Convert. And that's how she views herself. I was an unlikely convert to Christianity. And, and by, uh, she, I share her story because it is a clear demonstration that our meals have a power to them. Our meals, when we are following Jesus, we get to put God's grace in front of us. Because following Jesus... Well, it certainly involves worshiping him together in this room, certainly. But following Jesus also involves what occurs around our dinner table. When we eat meals, we have the opportunity to demonstrate that we understand that fellowship with sinners is the gospel. Fellowship with sinners is the gospel. When we sit down to eat dinner with our roommates, with our friends and our family, our, our community group, and neighbors and strangers, we have an opportunity to demonstrate clearly God's grace in our life. Because we get to invite people to, into our homes and say, hey, I want to serve you. This is a meal I give you. I am inviting to you into my house. There is no expectation of reciprocity. I'm inviting you into my house, and yes, the couch is a mess. Yes, toys are everywhere, especially if you have children. Like, I, we invite each other into our homes when our homes are a mess, and it's a picture of vulnerability where we are, don't have our lives all together. So when we invite people into our homes, into our lives, and share a meal with them, we have the opportunity to communicate that we are saved and rescued by God's grace and God's great grace alone. That's what the power of a shared meal has for us. And so the challenge of this text, when we think about our lives, when we think about every week, with the, every week that by the most calendars, the, like breakfast, lunch, and supper, uh, we eat 21 meals a week. That's incredible. There's 21 opportunities where we can share a meal with friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. We have an opportunity to share a meal. And so the question of this text is, as we specifically think about our own lives as followers of Jesus, don't we, like, how can we intentionally invite people into our lives and share a meal with them? Are we willing to do that just once a month? Are we willing to do that once a month? That's actually the call of this text. Because as disciples of Jesus, we are called to imitate Jesus. We're called to imitate his life, and that includes the ways that he shared the gospel. Because the gospel is fellowship with sinners. When we look at our lives, do, can we look at our lives and see how we, we associate with other sinners like us? And it, where, can we look at our lives and can we see how we associate with people who are actually different than us as well? Because God's grace is inclusive. God's grace goes to every sinner. And so when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is calling us to imitate and join him in his mission. And we are called to follow Jesus. We're called to imitate Jesus by being intentional and developing friendships with non-Christians, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their way of life, so that we may eat and drink with them at our house or even at their house. Because fellowship with sinners is the gospel. And that is the, the point of this, this entire text for our lives. So do our lives, do, when we look at our lives, can we see that? That when we look at our lives, do we see that by the, our friendships, 
by those whom we invite to the dinner table? Do, can we de- look at our lives and demonstrate that we understand that fellowship with sinners is the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for